I'm going to give you, go ahead and, and switch gears and talk about something completely different. You remember that? And now for something completely different. Uh, so we're going to talk about something completely different then. Uh, I'll leave time for questions. For all three of these talks, we'll have some time before you guys have to scurry off to lunch. So I'm going to talk about something that is, as I said, completely different from the field of lipids. Actually something that is completely different from what I treat in my office but something that all of us have a responsibility to be aware of and to begin the diagnostic process of. We are the top of the funnel of identifying patients with pulmonary arterial hypertension and identifying these patients early and getting them to appropriate centers uh, to be further worked up and treated. This is a, a disease state that not only do I diagnose a lot, but I have a very uh, personal relationship with this disease state, as you'll see as we uh, talk about, uh, as we move uh, through, this, uh, through this discussion. My disclosures have not changed in the last 25 minutes, as far as I, I know. Uh, they, are, they are here. And here's what we're going we're gonna to talk about. We're essentially going to talk about how to make the diagnosis um, and uh, uh, how to get these patients uh, put forward in treatment. All right, so here's that agenda. We're going to talk about the, making the diagnosis of PAH, we're going to talk about uh, treatment, and we're going to talk about the referral process. So I wanted to start with a brief case. I, a lot of the times when we begin these lectures, we start with a case. And we often, there's a lot of things to read, tends to put people to sleep just before lunch. I thought I would narrow this case down to the very bare bones of the case, to the kind of thing that you get asked at a dinner party. Hey, I'm coming to see you tomorrow. I was in the hospital and they told me I have pulmonary hypertension. My echo says I got a pulmonary pr uh, pressure of 45. Somebody says that to you, what do you do? What do you tell her? Well, you go back to your notes from my lecture and that's what you do. No, I think that quite frankly, the themes I want to uh, highlight in this talk are, number one, it depends. Absolutely depends on the presentation. The, the presentation, that patient's physiology, that diagnosis as we're going to go through. It really, really, really depends. It can have a very benign prognosis. This can have a terrible prognosis, that number, depending on where we see it. And the second thing, and this is a very important theme, don't miss group one. What is group one? I'm going to show you what group one is. These patients, you, we cannot miss. These patients are being missed in practice all the time. We know that in our group one patients, uh, uh, we, they used to have a, a very poor prognosis. That prognosis with early therapy is now fabulous. The prognosis with therapy that is started in the advanced stage is not nearly as good. And that's why this is a really, really important primary care topic. We need to be identifying these patients um, in our office. These patients are uh, in the early stages are not going to be presenting to pulmonary hypertension centers. They're going to be pr pr uh, presenting to our office. So we don't want to miss group one. So I'll tell you what group one is in just a moment, um, but I just want to kind of uh, set the stage with a little bit of physiology. As you can see there uh, in, uh, on this heart, I don't think I have a pointer. Oh, yes, I do have a pointer. So I'll do it over here. So here we have the uh, uh, deoxygenated blood shown in blue, returns uh, from the, uh, the vena cava, um, comes into the right atrium, goes into the right ventricle, and then it goes out to the pulmonary arteries to get oxygenated, then comes back through the pulmonary veins to the left uh, atrium, down to the left ventricle, and goes out to the rest of the body. Pulmonary hypertension 
pH, pulmonary hypertension, just means that the pressure in these uh, blood vessels is elevated. That pressure can be elevated for all sorts of reasons, right? If you have lung disease and you can't push that blood into the lung, that's going to elevate that, that pressure. If you have left-sided heart failure, right, so blood is backing up in the left ventricle, into the left atrium, pulmonary veins, into the lung, back into the pulmonary artery, that can increase pulmonary pressure. If you have a blood clot sitting in the lung, that can increase pulmonary pressure. But you can also have primary disorders of the pulmonary artery that increase the pulmonary pressure, where the artery itself is damaged, constricted, and hypertrophied. That is known as pulmonary arterial hypertension. It's really tough. The terminology can get really confusing. I just want to make sure we're all on the same page with that. So pulmonary hypertension is anything that raises blood pressure in, anything that raises pressure in the pulmonary artery. Pulmonary arterial hypertension is generally anything that actually causes the pulmonary artery to hypertrophy and to cause that blood pressure problem by itself. It is a primary issue in the pulmonary artery. So PAH is a subset of pH. And all we know from that first patient is that they have pH, right? That first clinical vignette, all we know is their pulmonary pressures are high. We don't know why they're high. So this is, uh, uh, I think, just kind of very fundamental and foundational. What are the signs and symptoms of pulmonary hypertension, right? This is pH. This is anybody who has elevations in the pulmonary, uh, in the pulmonary artery. Well, you can see shortness of breath. You can see lethargy, fatigue, exertional chest pain, leg swelling, abdominal bloating. Oh, my God, I have all of those. Like, these are very, very nonspecific things. It's very hard to tell if a patient like that one who's going to come to your office on Monday is symptomatic or not. These are very uh, nonspecific symptoms. And our physical signs are often not very specific in helping us to determine the cause of a patient's pulmonary hypertension. You can hear a murmur. That murmur is usually tricuspid, right, because you have elevated right-sided pressures, so you get tricuspid regurgitation. And most of us in this day and age are not very good at uh, determining tricuspid regurgitation from uh, mitral regurgitation based purely on auscultation. It's uh, something we should be able to do, but we're not always able to do. Leg swelling uh, uh, and abdominal swelling are, can be seen, right, as blood backs up into the vena cava. Um, that could also be seen, right, with left heart failure. That can be seen with cirrhosis. That can be seen with nephrosis. That can be seen with chronic venous insufficiency. Once again, very nonspecific. What you don't see in pure pH is RALS, right? If, or in PAH, you don't see RALS, right? If you hear RALS uh, on exam, um, that is a sign of left-sided heart failure, right? That's blood backing up into the lungs. So RALS is a really helpful clinical sign at distinguishing the cause of that patient's pulmonary hypertension. It's usually associated with left-sided uh, uh, heart failure. So, you know, these are very nonspecific, and we should generally be suspecting pulmonary hypertension when the uh, uh, pulmonary pressure on an echo is over 25. So 25 is the diagnostic criteria for, uh, uh, for pulmonary hypertension. The reason I said uh, suggesting is to truly, uh, what we see on an echo is actually an estimation of pulmonary pressure. If we really want to know somebody's pulmonary pressure, you got to do a right heart cath which we do do, as I'll talk about in some of these patients, but you're going to suspect possibly you're dealing with pulmonary hypertension. When you see these signs, hear these symptoms, 
you open up that echo and that pulmonary pressure is greater than 25. Um, so that's uh, the kind of number to keep in your head. So how do we work these patients up? There's a all these patients need an echo, right? If you're suspecting pulmonary hypertension, um, start with an echo. Uh, start with an echo. Oftentimes your echocardiographers can be really helped out if you somewhere on the, uh, uh, on your request say that you're interested in the pulmonary pressures, they will look a little bit more carefully. Figuring out pulmonary pressure can be difficult on echo. It can be very, very difficult and sometimes uh, we can be a little sloppy, um, some of our technicians, and so really asking them to, to evaluate pulmonary pressures is very, very helpful. Um, and then, as you can see, you could spend a fortune in working up the causes of pulmonary hypertension. If we did all these things in every single patient who had a pulmonary pressure greater than 25, and a third of the patients who come into my office have a pulmonary pressure greater than 25, right? So we're not gonna do all these things in every patient. We're gonna try to get a good history, do a good physical exam, and try to figure out who's a type one. And those are the patients who are gonna need a lot of this uh, workup. So I finally get to tell you who a type one is. Actually, I'm not even gonna do that yet because I'm gonna start at the bottom of this slide, right? So this is the WHO classification of pulmonary hypertension, of pH. Remember, pulmonary arterial hypertension is a subset of pulmonary hypertension. So there are five different etiologies of pH, of pulmonary hypertension. And this is your goal when you're evaluating one of these patients. What bucket do I think this patient falls into? I'll start at the bottom of the slide. Number five are the zebras. It's the weird things that cause pulmonary hypertension. These have usually already been diagnosed. Certain malignancies that can cause it, sarcoid can cause it, um, Febreze disease is a common cause. We have one patient with Febreze in our, in our practice. Um, but these, these are relatively uncommon. But the other, Numbers four, three, and two are incredibly common. Number four is patients who've had a pulmonary embolism or continue to have pulmonary emboli. Those are type fours, right? So you're gonna get that from your history, a uh, patient uh, who has a history of uh, uh, venous thromboembolic disease. Number three is probably the most common. We used to say number two is the most common, but now in this day and age, number three is probably the most common. That's pulmonary hypertension due to chronic lung disease, either COPD or even more commonly in this day and age, sleep apnea. So sleep apnea is a very, very common, uh, uh, very, very common cause of pulmonary hypertension. Those are type threes. Type two is what, um, if you are, are going back and taking your boards, we've always said that type twos are the most common. I think they're not anymore. Type two is somebody with left heart failure, as I showed from that, that physiology, right? If your left side is backing up, eventually that backs up to the right side of the heart and you will uh, uh, get uh, uh, pulmonary hypertension. And so obviously looking for signs of angina, signs of heart failure, looking for RALS, right? If I hear RALS or I have a decreased ejection fraction, that patient's most likely a type two. Um, and then we have the type ones. These are the ones that are highlighted there because these are the ones I, we don't want to miss. These are the patients with PAH, pulmonary arterial hypertension. Um, it can happen to anybody. There's an idiopathic form of PAH. 
Um, it can also run in families. There's a heritable form. There's some genetic testing that can sometimes be done. And then connective tissue disease is probably the most common that we'll see. Patients with systemic sclerosis have a very high incidence of, uh, of developing PAH, um, what we used to call scleroderma, very high uh, incidence. And HIV disease, a very high incidence of pulmonary arterial hypertension. So that's the type one. That is the pri that's a primary problem in the pulmonary artery. So the workup that we do follows that diagnostic criteria. I kind of take liberties with, this came right out of our guidelines for pulmonary arterial hypertension. I, I take a little bit of liberties in how I explain this slide um, because this is sort of how I think we should do it. I put the slide from the guidelines here um, so you can, uh, uh, you can uh, decide that for yourself. But the bottom line is you have a patient who has some of these vague symptoms. You have a patient who has an elevated pulmonary pressure on their echo, right? If they have severe, severe symptoms, they can't get out of bed, they're so short of breath, their legs are weeping, you know what, we probably don't need to be spending a lot of time working that patient up in our own office. That patient just probably needs to go straight to a pulmonary hypertension referral center. Every community has one. Sometimes they're pulmonologists, usually uh, they're the cardiologists, but there's usually a specific person who is the pulmonary hypertension guy. We have one in our community, Dr. Joe Stevenson. He's a total stud. He takes care of this disorder. He knows everything about it a lot more than I do. So if I see a patient like that, I'm on the phone. I'm going to get you in to see Joe Stevenson. That's the, that's the minority of these patients. Majority of these patients are, are more like the case that we started with, right? Um, symptomatic, but not terribly so, has a high pulmonary pressure. And then your job is to try to figure out, all right, is it a type one, a type two, a type three, or type four? If it's not a two, three, or four, you need to think, hey, maybe it's a one. Maybe it's PAH. So I gotta think, does my patient have chronic pulmonary emboli, right? Do they have any risk factors or history of pulmonary emboli. Maybe I'll get a CT scan, or they really, the pulmonologists love VQ scans for uh, chronic pulmonary emboli. A CT scan or a VQ scan to try and confirm or, or refute the possibility it's a type four. For type three, right? Maybe I'll get a sleep study. Maybe I'll do PFTs in that patient. Try to figure out if they, in fact, have pulmonary disease. If they have pulmonary disease, I'm gonna go through a whole different workup and referral process, right? I may be able to take care of their COPD and their sleep apnea in my office. I may need to send them to a traditional pulmonologist. Or does the patient have type two? What's my ejection fraction look like? And importantly, remember, you can have left-sided heart failure with a normal ejection fraction, with a preserved ejection fraction. So does my patient have Rawls? Do they have a history of, 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 of heart disease? Have they had a heart attack? What's their diastolic function look like, right? Trying to figure out if they're a type two. If they're a type two, right? They have pulmonary hypertension because of left-sided heart failure. Once again, that's a completely different referral pattern. You may want to take care of their heart failure in your office. You may want to send that patient to a traditional cardiologist. Um, so we're, we're really basing our workup on what we think the underlying physiology might be. If it looks like they don't have pulmonary, chronic uh, uh, pulmonary emboli, they don't have left sided heart failure, they don't have lung disease, what are you left with? Pulmonary arterial hypertension, a type one, PAH. And those patients probably need, you can start the workup, but if you suspect a patient has PAH, they need a referral to a, a, a PAH center. And here is, here's why. Early diagnosis and treatment is critical in this disease. When I was in 
training, we diagnosed a few people with pulmonary arterial hypertension. And essentially what we told them, get your things in order, get your affairs in order. The mean survival was less than three years in these patients with type one. Uh, really, and, and it was not pretty. These patients got incredibly short of breath, they developed terrible leg swelling, um, ascites oftentimes, and they essentially died a miserable death um, in, in a very short amount of time. We now have disease-specific therapies for these type 1s for, uh, for patients with PAH, disease-specific therapies that have completely changed the outcome of uh, what happens to these patients, particularly if it started early. The earlier you treat these patients, the better. So this is a, a very complicated algorithm that talks about what's going to happen after you refer that patient to a PAH center, right? So your job is to figure out, hey, I think this is a type 1. If they think it's a type 1, what they'll do is they'll uh, do a right heart cath, and that's how you really make the diagnosis of a type 1. They're also going to, and, and you can too, markers like BNP or doing a six-minute walk test, a simple six-minute walk test, see how far a patient can walk in six minutes is a really good idea of their functional capacity. Um, but basically, if patients are symptomatic and they, have their, they do a right heart cath um, and it looks like PAH, they will essentially, all this says is they're going to be started on treatment. And we have, as I said, when I was in training, we didn't have any treatments for PAH. We now have multiple different treatments for this disorder. There are some patients, as you see at the top of this slide, who will respond to calcium channel blockers. Um, these are patients um, who uh, have a, um, uh, uh, are vasoreactive, um, and you can tell that at, at right heart cath. So the pulmonologist uh, or the cardiologist who does that right heart cath will be able to determine if they're a, a candidate for a calcium channel blocker or not. Most are not, but if you, if you are, those are, are well-tolerated, um, uh, inexpensive medications. And then we have a, a bunch of other classes of drugs. We have endothelial receptor antagonists, or ERAs. Um, these drugs were originally developed as for systemic hypertension, for arterial systemic hypertension. They, they do lower blood pressure a bit, but what we found is, yeah, they dilate systemic arteries a bit, but they dilate the pulmonary artery a whole ton. And so we stopped looking at these drugs in systemic hypertension and started looking in pulmonary hypertension. We also have PDE5 inhibitors. You will recognize those drugs. These were also originally studied as, uh, as systemic antihypertensives, but they seem to really dilate arteries in two areas more than in other areas, right? So one is, uh, is below the waist and one is above the waist. So uh, these drugs are great for erectile dysfunction, but they also have uh, shown tremendous benefit in patients with pulmonary arterial hypertension. Um, and then we have, uh, 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 we have uh, uh, the guanylate cyclase stimulators, um, not used quite as much in this country. We have prostanoids, um, which we tend in this country to use for patients who have more advanced disease, uh, mostly because originally the, these drugs were all IV. Um, there are intranasal uh, formulations, and there's one that's available orally as well. And then there's this kind of unique drug um, that's uh, IP receptor agonist that there's a lot of debate about at the bottom of this uh, slide. It's got some pretty good data behind it, but there's also some side effect issues. Uh, most of these drugs are very well tolerated, uh, particularly uh, the, the uh, ERAs and the PDE5 drugs. Um, the main side effect that you'll see is lightheadedness um, because they do have an effect on, on, on systemic hypertension. Um, and that's something you have to be a little bit careful of. And particularly if these patients do have systemic hypertension as well, backing off on some of their blood pressure drugs uh, may be appropriate. 
So those are the drugs that are available. Turns out, though, that they work better in combination. So really, the name of the game is not just single drugs. We used to, like, oh, gosh, we, we have these new drugs available to us. We've, we're saving lives with these folks. And it turns out, though, that using two drugs right off the bat in a symptomatic patient is better than one. Um, as you can see, uh, the uh, endothelial receptor antagonist combined with a PDE5 has the best data to it and is generally the recommendation. Um, some of that is based upon this study that I just wanted to show you. Um, uh, this is with uh, one of the PDE5 drugs combined with uh, one of the endothelial receptor antagonists. Remember, this is combined versus monotherapy. Combined versus monotherapy. So this was the, the endpoint was death, hospitalization for worsening symptoms, disease progression, inadequate long-term response. As you can see, combination therapy was twice as good as a single drug twice as good as a single drug. And don't forget, no therapy would look like this. These patients would be dead at four years. So monotherapy is incredibly effective based upon what we know about the natural history. Combination therapy even more. This is sort of the natural history of being an adult in this country, right? We are really have changed the nature of treating, of, of, of what happens, of the lives of patients with PAH but only if we identify them early. So the 2019 guidelines from ACCHA suggest the combination of an endothelium receptor antagonist and a PDE5 to improve walking distance. Oh, I forgot to mention the walking distance. So uh, with combination therapy, death in this uh, uh, study um, that went out about two years was only 4%, and doubling of walking distance patients were able to double how far they could walk. Um, so this is uh, indicated not just to, to keep people out of the hospital, but to improve the quality of their life. And even in patients who are on one drug, we recommend going to two drugs now um, from, the, uh, from, the, uh, from those uh, uh, guidelines. So who should be screened? Once again, this is all dependent upon the funnel, right? The funnel starts in this room. We have to be identifying these patients. They're not just going to stumble in in early stages to a pulmonary arterial hypertension center, right? We need to be identifying these patients. We need to be potentially doing echoes in some of these patients, right, to really establish their, uh, uh, establish their, uh, their pulmonary pressures. So who should we be thinking about? In general, we should be thinking about patients with systemic sclerosis or scleroderma or other connective tissue diseases. We should be thinking about patients with HIV disease. We should be thinking about patients who have a family history of PAH. And then most importantly, whenever we see that echo that has a high pulmonary pressure or pressure over 25, we need to be thinking about why is that, patient's, is that patient have a, uh, have a pulmonary pressure greater than 25? What group are they in? Yeah, if their pulmonary pressure is 35 and they have sleep apnea, okay. I don't think I probably need to work that patient up any further. If their pulmonary pressure is 35 and they have known left-sided heart failure, hey, okay, I don't think I need to work that patient up any further. If they're 35, though, and I can't explain why, that's a patient that needs to be worked up further. If they're asymptomatic, you may just want to follow that. If they're truly asymptomatic, you may just want to check another echo in a year and see if their pulmonary pressures are going up. But if they have any symptoms at all and you can't explain why, you can't put them in one of those other buckets, they look like they could be a type one. It's incumbent upon us to get them to the right center to finish that workup. 
So I'm just going to finish before we do our ARS questions. Just going to finish with uh, another brief case. It's a case that's near and dear to my heart, right? So this is, I think, an example of how the system works when it works. 55-year-old female, long-standing Renaud's. She's had long-standing Renaud's symptoms. She's had positive ANA since her 40s. Um, she, her uh, primary care uh, provider was following her, and eventually she developed some symptoms, and he was able to make the diagnosis of systemic sclerosis, or what we used to call scleroderma. He started checking her echo, it happened to be a he, started checking her echo every year. So every year she got an echo. By the time she was 65, her pulmonary pressures had gone up to about 35 or 40 on her echo. And she noticed that when she comes to visit her family in Lake Tahoe, she's not able to keep up with her grandchildren, right? She's got a lot of, uh, fair amount of shortness of breath. Um, never been a big exerciser. She didn't notice it as much as her family noticed it. Um, but even, she became short of breath even with mild exercise. So she was, uh, based upon the symptoms, the high pulmonary pressures, she was referred uh, to an integrated pulmonary arterial hypertension center, started on monotherapy, then when the data came out with combination therapy, she was put on combination therapy. She's now 75 years old. She remains on combination therapy. Um, she's on a PD-5 and an ER and a endothelial receptor antagonist. She just got back from uh, Morocco and Portugal. She's active, runs around with her grandchildren who are much older now, even up at altitude at Lake Tahoe. Um, and her pulmonary pressures still are less than 40. Her six-minute walk test and her BNP are lower than when she was first diagnosed. And importantly, her PCP, because she thinks this is no big deal that she has PAH. She's like, what, what's the big deal? Why does that one make such a big deal? I feel fine. Take a couple pills. I feel great. She makes sure, primary care provider makes sure that she gets an echo every year, does a six-minute walk every year, gets a BNP every year, and importantly, takes her medicines every day. I don't think you guys would be surprised. As I said, this is somebody near and dear to me. This is actually my mom. This is my mom. This is actually her case. That is her um, when my uh, son, uh, Theo, was born. I, of course, picked this picture. She couldn't get out of a chair. Well, she could get out of a chair. She walked, but she was definitely short of breath. That's her at age uh, 55. Um, this is her with my kids, my sister's kids. We just, uh, she just literally this week got back from Morocco, but a year ago we took a trip with the whole family to Southeast Asia. Uh, she was able to run around with her grandkids. Here's her climbing up uh, at, uh, um, in Cambodia, climbing up Angkor Wat, very steep stairs, all by herself, not short of breath, doing great. Um, so this is an example of how this works, and it all is because her primary care doctor 20 years ago thought maybe I should check and see if this patient has pulmonary arterial hypertension. So take-home messages. pH, pulmonary hypertension, is common and has diverse etiologies. And the workup and management are based upon that etiology. Pulmonary arterial hypertension, or a type 1, is a subset of, PA, of pH. And it should be considered in patients without known heart or lung disease, and particularly those with connective tissue disease, family history, or HIV, HIV disease, has a great prognosis if it's caught early and treated with combination therapy. We need to, need, treatment will take place at a specialty center, but that workup, those patients, the top of that funnel, those patients need to be identified in primary care. Oh, thank you guys very much for your attention. I'm not sure if we have time for questions or not. Do we have time? I think you could. It, 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 it's food time. I don't want to. Yeah, it's food. Hungry. What time is lunch? Yeah. Any any burning questions for Dr. Block?
That was a great a couple of talks, by the way. All right, thank, thank you very thank much. Thank you so I appreciate much. It.